Welcome to CinemaScope, a new podcast from True Story FM. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson, co-host of the Next Real Film podcast and Movies We Like. As a passionate movie lover, I've always relished exploring the diverse landscape of cinema. And when you look closer at the taxonomy of genres, subgenres, and film movements, you see an intricate web of interconnections and influences. This complex cinematic family tree spans only 125 years. So how did styles as diverse as the French New Wave, New Queer Cinema, and Ozploitation emerge? What cultural, economic, and technological forces sculpted these styles? And what hidden threads unite them all as part of the same fantastic art form? Those questions sent me on a journey to explore each style and trace their impacts, all to better understand the bridges between different styles. And that led me here to CinemaScope. In each episode, I'll be exploring one particular genre, subgenre, or film movement in depth, inviting expert guests to help us all better understand what defines that style, how it came to be, and what branches it, in turn, influenced on this big cinematic family tree. For example, how did German Expressionism shape American film noir? What's the difference between Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, and Brazilian Nordesterns? We'll examine the economic and socio-political forces that birthed categories like black exploitation, and we'll spotlight visionary films and directors key to the evolution of different styles. So join me as we explore the complex forces that shape film's evolution and appreciate the diverse creativity possible in its relatively brief history. Let Cinemascope be your guide to understanding this art form we cherish how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to CinemaScope today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Streetcar Named Desire is over. I don't want realism. I want magic. Hey, Stella! No actor in history has ever made such impact in a single role as Marlon Brando. In Tennessee Williams' Pulitzer Prize play and Academy Award motion picture, A Streetcar Named Desire. Who do you think you are, Fair Queens? I just remember what Huey Long said, that every man's a king and I'm the king around here. And don't you forget it. Fighting, lusting, loving, never for a moment less than completely alive. A man who had two women living in his house, reacting to his savage appeal. But talking about his desire, just brutal desire. Vivian Lee, in her Academy Award-winning role as Blanche. Kim Hunter, in her Academy Award-winning role as Stella. You don't have to believe me, baby. <laughs> A story ripped from the fabric of life, as earthy and violent as its unforgettable star. Hmm. All right, let's have a little fox. The movie's fine. Okay, the movie's fine. It's okay. <laughs> Off on a strong start. <laughs> Off on a strong start with Streetcar Named Desire. No, it, uh, Streetcar Named Desire, 1951, it, it, wild, widely considered one of the greatest films uh, of all time. <laughs> it's yeah, it, lauded as a good movie. What's your What's your history with Streetcar? I this is only the second time I'd seen it. I can't remember the first time I watched it. I had rented it likely because it was one of those films that was always on best lists and stuff. And I'm like, I finally need to watch that. 
and I watched it and I agreed. And then I kind of, uh, I just, I had it in that place. Like, yeah, that's a great film. Hadn't thought about it a whole lot. Um, and, and then we were building these lists and, um, I know we kind of built this one specifically around, well, two things, death of a salesman and, and strangers on a train, but the fact that this also was able to be on this list kind of gave, you know, it thrilled me because it gave me the chance to revisit this. And I had forgotten exactly how just explosive and how much energy is in this film and just like the, the fascinating characters and it, you can just, you know, feel everything that's going on. It was just um, fantastically constructed and put together. I really, really enjoyed it. Had a great time with it. And I'm definitely glad to have had a chance to revisit it. Uh, what about you? My history with it is is more with the uh, the play, Tennessee Williams' play. I've seen the movie a couple of times, uh, two, three times maybe. And I find that the movie is one of those movies that when I am watching it for specifically for performances, like to see what human beings can do to create emotion and energy on screen or, or on stage, I think it's fantastic. Uh, to, if, if I step back from that, there's not much story to it. Like there's not enough story to it for to to m- kind of maintain attention and focus. So I sort of have to watch the the depth of those performances uh, because those are what keep the thing alive for me. I recognize that it is it is one of those movies that is just really celebrated for the stellar cast. I mean, Brando and. Kim Hunter and Carl Malden. Oh, Nebishi Carl Malden. And Vivian Lee, of course. I, I recognize that there's a lot to celebrate there. But but again, I I find it's it's one of those weird movies that I recognize all the parts are extraordinary and I'm still bored. Really? Yeah. Interesting. I am bored to tears through this movie. It is a great movie that bores me. To tears? That's like heavily yeah, bored. Yeah, not tears. I'm not crying. But I'm, I'm too bored to be crying. No, it's an easy movie for me to want to go full teenager and pick up my phone. Like, I just, I'm, it is a fight for me to pay attention to this movie. If Again, I'm not saying that it's, I don't love the movie. I'm saying I don't choose to put it on as like, you know, I don't love the movie. It's fine. I had never seen the play. So, I mean, I don't know if that reshapes it. I mean, I'm assuming that you feel the same about the play then. Again, depends on the performances, right? I've seen it with a couple of different casts, and I I find, like, particularly Stanley, you know, if you get... Brando's why I watch this movie, because I think this is so much... So much of a like the tentpole to method for him, like this is where people I think really discovered that he has a he has a way of approaching authenticity and physicality in his performances that is different. And so I I think that is the the important piece for him because he took what was such a theatrical part and a theatrical performance and he made it he fashioned it for film and that has to be acknowledged when talking about this movie because that part is like he made it something that sparkles on screen like when i watch marlon brando when i'm really focused on brando it is like i think he's extraordinary i think he's just extraordinary um and un- unlike anything that we, you know, had had been watching before, obviously, I wasn't born yet, but I just know he he was sort of the uh, a, a pivot point in how people approached, uh, you know, particularly in hindsight, how people approached performances of this sort. And so I think Brando's fantastic. I feel like the movies, you know, it's easy for me to get into the spirit of, OK, you know, it's a movie about in-laws who stay too long. Yeah, so so you'd pick a Christmas vacation a hundred percent every time. I know I went to I went to the the easy one for you there. <laughs> I <laughs> I uh, I absolutely agree. I mean, Brando is electric, and it's just it's stunning to watch him on screen. And just I don't know. As I was watching this, so often I was trying to think about like how many of these little detailed movements and things that he did on screen repeated from take to take, you know, because some of it seemed so at a spur of the moment that it didn't even feel like it, like it, it just felt like there's no way that in a different 
take, he tried to grab out of the air a little floating feather from her boa that, uh, or her, um, uh, I, I guess it was a boa, I don't know, it was a feather or a little bit of hair from her, you know, her uh, mink. I'm not exactly sure, but, you know, there's this point where he just kind of tries to pick it out of the air. And I'm like, there's no way that that happened in another right. take. Like, what are the odds of something like that? And then just like watching him smashing things and throwing things and just the way that intensity just kind of comes out of nowhere sometimes. I, I can only imagine like acting opposite him or directing him how every time it feels so fresh and new and different. And you, I mean, it really is something that puts everybody who's working with him uh, and anyone who's acting this way, like fully in the moment, because you have to figure out how to react to that. And it's just, it really is kind of astonishing. And I can imagine for Kazan, it's like, it's always the concern for the director when you're working with this of the idea of continuity. and <laughs> Will we be able to ever cut from one shot to the other uh, based on, what what brando is doing but at the same time you also i assume have to acknowledge that brando understands the craft of film enough to understand the idea of continuity and and has to be providing something that has some continuity so that the the film can actually put be put together which is very different from acting on stage well and if anything we know of of kazan from just other kazan films like he he's the perfect fit for this show, right? He's the perfect fit because he's he's like the Brando of directing, right? Like I have to imagine it continuity is even a, a lesser concern for him than figuring out what the grab the feather is in each take. Like what is the emotional spark, the improvisational, heavily character driven spark that he's going to get out of these people? Then, you know, he'll figure out how to how to tie it all together later, but just get the emotion on celluloid. Uh, I, I think he's, he's the perfect fit for it. Well, and obviously coming from the stage, you know, Kazan directed the original Broadway production and had as the cast three of these four, you know, Marlon Brando, who is pretty unknown at the time, Carl Malden, Kim Hunter, they all came from the Broadway show. Jessica Tandy was the only one that that did not end up getting ported over from Broadway. They ended up casting Vivian Lee because again, none of these names were really enough to carry a film, and so they wanted a name, and so they brought Vivian Lee over, who had been playing uh the character of Blanche over in London. And so they brought her over because of the name. And, you know, at the time, she's getting higher build for the film. And I think that certainly shows. I think she's just as powerful as he is. I, having Kazan already know this story inside and out, having directed on Broadway, made perfect sense to then say, hey, why don't you come direct this film version as well? Yeah. So about Vivian Lee, uh, what is your take on Vivian Lee's performance? I mean, it was just... Very powerful, very um, uh, a great surprise. Having seen very little of her in film, you know, I, I generally go to Gone with the Wind. I think most people probably go to Gone with the Wind as one of her primary performances. But she certainly has been in plenty of films. You know, it's not like she was in any shortage of them. But this film is probably the second one that I would be thinking of with her. And I think just... She seems maybe perhaps a little young for the part. I could tell that they were trying to like make her look a little older, you know, but they again wanted that name. And it's such an interesting character. She's our protagonist through the course of the film. We're pretty much following her through the whole thing. And it really is just a kind of a tortured portrait of a woman who has kind of lost herself and is just trying to figure out how to hold on to anything as her. You know, you don't know exactly what is going on with Blanche. Is it something in her is in her mind? Is she suffering some form of uh, of of a break of some sort, kind of a, a mental uh, break? Exactly what's going on? Certainly, being left alone to kind of manage everything, being driven into prostitution and losing all of her property and everything was a big element of this character. And I just, I was in it. I, everything that she was doing was incredibly powerful. And the end, uh, when they're walking her out and when she takes that arm of the doctor as he, you know, is acting all gentlemanly and takes her out. It just, I mean, it's, it's just a heartbreaking final moment of a film. And I just, I, I don't know. It really 
was, uh, you know, as powerful for me as Brando was. This, I think this gets to, I'll agree with all of that. Although I, I find Vivian Lee a lesser uh, sort of casting choice than everybody else in the film. I, I really, I, I think if I struggle with anybody, and I didn't really struggle, but if I struggled, it would be with Vivian Lee. But the, here's the thing that I struggle with in the film perform- adaptation of this compared to some other, um, you know, stage choices that I've, I've seen made. And I think this is this is just the choice they made, right? It's all about choices. In the film, to me, it feels like the pacing from her being a daffy sister-in-law coming in and stirring up conflict in the relationship and in this particular location, they lean on that heavily, I think, far too long in the film. And if you can imagine seeing stage performances where it feels like the director realizes that she is dealing with some significant emotional damage earlier in the film. So by the time she's taken away, that feels more earned, right? To me, it's by the time we get into the sort of the the last 30 minutes of the movie that it feels like, oh, now we're really leaning in on the fact that we're talking this is this is also a play about or a, a story about mental illness this is a story about trauma ptsd and it moves very very quickly to we've turned you into the docs we're committing you to an asylum almost as a as a uh you know epilogue and that feels rushed to me that's one of the things i really struggle with and i think that's a that's a choice that they made in 1951 and probably in the original run of the play maybe out of necess- cultural necessity i don't know but I think I think it does greater justice to the character in Streetcar that we have a longer run of the the sort of uh, the struggles that she's she's had the way she portrays this character as potentially more damaged earlier. I, I, I just feel like it's better earned. And so I struggle with that in the movie. It feels like at the end we rush toward committal and that uh, to me is always comes as a bit of a surprise. I, well, and that's interesting. I, I guess for me, I really felt pretty much from the start that there was something with her, uh, in, in the way that her character acted, reacted. There was something already broken in her. And I felt that they did a good job of kind of exploring that over the course of the beginning of the film, building to kind of the, the later story with the revelations and, and, and everything as, Stanley kind of keeps digging and probing and learning more about her history and confronting her with it. And I, I felt all of that, uh, worked. And for me, I, I went along with it. I, I found the, the journey for her character slowly cracking over time. I, I thought that it actually was, it was pretty powerful. And we're learning all those little bits and pieces of, we find out about how she had been married earlier. And I guess it's more, uh, spelled out in the play that her husband had been homosexual and she had caught him uh, like you know sleeping with another man and that kind of broke her and then it led to her husband killing himself uh, and so that was a big part of it and that led her to again sleeping around apparently with everybody in town including unfortunately a 17 year old boy who you know that was really the thing that, that where everybody drove her out of town and so you could see how that moment led to her breaking. And so I, I don't know, for me, I felt that we had that, that build, uh, but I can see that. I can see how that could be something um, that certainly, because, I mean, we're spending uh, a, a large amount of time with Blanche Dubois in the film. She is our protagonist. You know, we're seeing everything pretty much through her eyes over the course of it. And so I can imagine that if if you're not quite clicking with all of those uh, those elements from the beginning, that all of the pivoting that we're suddenly doing in that last part of the film suddenly can come as a bit of a surprise. That I, you ju- I mean, you just described it. I, I feel like that's the thing that that her I, and and I also think that that maybe um, you know I'm I'm this is a movie that's easily spoiled, and if you know more deeply where her trauma comes from that she instigated the suicide of her husband (laughs) like like that that just feels like a weighty enough uh, a a weightier sort of sense of of trauma to me than what we got from her and like losing bell reeve the economic struggle the legacy of family it's all there it's all good but she plays third act the way she would have played it had we had all of the 
the stuff that they cut from the play. And I, I don't think those two things balance out. I think that's, that's where I struggle with the adaptation. That's what it is. It's an adaptation quibble. I have adaptation quibbles. Uh, the other element, uh, I, I think, is an interesting element that plays into the end that I think, you know, there, there are a few things that the National uh, Legion of Decency and the production code kind of pushed them to censor a few scenes. One, again, was kind of the, the bit about the husband's sexuality, also about the fact that she had been intimate with so many men back at that place. Just And it's changing lines, you know, for a lot of that. But also a little bit of kind of the implication that Stanley rapes her toward the end, which makes that end all the more kind of devastating and dark when we see that they are committing her largely, we're assuming based on Stanley's decision to do so. But it's also like, well, he also just raped her and now he's committing her. And it's just like, it really takes everything to this incredibly dark place when we're seeing where things are going. And so it's interesting, like we have such interesting dark characters, but, and so that's another dark element that we can see when, when she's getting committed at the very end. I mean, certainly she is having a lot of emotional issues and needs help, but I mean, what's, what's your position on kind of everything, the way that it portrays everything that had built based on that final confrontation between her and uh, Stanley? This is all incredibly important because it's not just about like these characters in the room where it happened. It's also about like, look at the way Stanley's character is a clash against the old South. Like this, him raping her is a testament to the fact that the old South is dead, right? Like to me, that's, that's what the, the film, the story itself is screaming. And her tragic demise is, is a parallel to the tragic demise of Belle Reeve. Uh, the fact that that's the pivot to her sort of mental breakdown is the thing that, that gets me there to having that third act play. Well, the, the, challenge that I have is maybe that it's not dark enough because I think the baggage that she has I, I think I just prefer, yeah, again, adaptation quibbles. I could say the same thing over and over again. So uh, it's, it, Stanley's brutal. Stanley's a brutal character. And I think we need to see that in force. Well, is it adaptation quibbles that uh, based on, you know, what we're saying, like our directorial choices, or is it really adaptation quibbles that were kind of forced upon them per the production code? For sure. And I, I sort of armchair this, like what, what does a recent, I haven't, I mean, have there, I know you're going to talk about sequels and remakes, but, but I, you know, I am, this is, this is the one that I have seen on screen. And so, you know, if there are others, I'm, very curious how they handle adaptation, not as remake of this, but as adaptation of source, because there's there's just more material to be mined and to to take this to the the true indictment of the complexity of the cultural, political and economic center of the South. And or or I should not say center. New Orleans was not the center, but the peripheral to old South and what the the power in the South represented as it changed. Another twist that that happens in the film that didn't happen in the play, which also, I suppose you could say, softens the blow a little bit, was at the very end. You know, we have Stella outside with the baby as she watches Blanche get taken away by the doctor and the nurse. She says, you know, I'm never going back to him. She takes the baby and she goes upstairs uh, to Eunice's place. And uh, she's like, I I'm, I'm done. Which, you know, I suppose in the way of not letting your, your uh, antagonist win certainly fits with the production code type of story. In the play, however, she stays, and and it's a much bleaker ending. You know, she kind of denies the fact that Stanley might have raped her sister, but she stays there. And I, I think that's even darker. Like, there are so many dark elements in this story. What I like about the film, other than that ending, is you can read all of those other elements in there. Like, they hint enough to to give you a sense as to what had been going on with Blanche's husband, that there had been this rape when, when Stanley, after Stella goes to the hospital and Stanley attacks Blanche. Like, you can interpret all of that. That ending, however, 
is a definitely clear ending that is pretty spelled out. And it was interesting to see. I didn't know how the play originally ended. And so seeing that there was that change as well, I I can certainly say I would kind of like to see these darker elements within the story because I think it that is kind of what really this story is about is just like this this the darkness in these people and and uh Stanley just oh, wow what a what an incredibly dark frightening character yeah for sure this is a sad sad movie that like the the movie is the the story itself is important because of its bleakness because of its hopelessness and i i think the dribble of hope at the end is a dribble too much right the the point is everyone here for one reason or another is trapped and the fact that blanche shows up um as a, a sort of destination of almost last resort is yet another testament that the changing times become a trap for everyone involved. And Stella just got there sooner. And, uh, and, and then she, you know, Blanche ends up the sort of ultimate trapped as she's taken away and, and committed to the asylum. So I think it's, I, I think it's meant to be unsympathetic to the the place where the characters are are stuck and and that's the that is the most important thing of the movie and i think it's absolved a little bit when she goes upstairs it's really the 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 change the biggest change character that we have in the film well <laughs> i mean i maybe in the play in the film obviously we have that change at the end with stella as she makes a decision to change but i definitely think that there is this new view that mitch has right at the end as he ends up uh, almost forgiving Blanche for, as he sees it, the wrongs that she had done with having, you know, slept around so much and all that stuff, which is why he left her. And not that he was together, but they were kind of seeing each other. And, uh, you know, I, I think that there is that element at the end where, I don't know, it makes me wonder if the big change character is Mitch. And perhaps from this point forward, like maybe he's not going to be playing poker with Stanley anymore, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think Mitch is one of those characters. Like, I, I don't know. He's, he's kind of troublesome in his own way. Like he's trapped too. He's more sympathetic than Stanley for sure, but he's trapped too, mostly because he's, he's the, the expression of weakness and manipulation. Like he's the one who, who can be manipulated because he's naive, right? And when Blanche needs him, he's not there, right? And, and so uh, that, that is also uh, a, a problem and one of the statements of the movie, right? That, that, women are objects to be possessed and he you know takes on that role just as easy as anyone else he does except for at the very end when she's being taken away by the doctors and that's where i'm saying like perhaps that is going to be his final change because yeah i mean he has that very dark moment where as as he's confronting blanche it's almost like he is going to take her like he's now viewing her as that slut that everybody else calls her and wants to abuse her and dump her just like everyone else has uh it doesn't end up happening but certainly there's that dark darkness to his character that we have briefly um i just think that maybe at the end he's finally seen the light and realizes that there's that stanley isn't this good guy and he's you know perhaps that's the change he needed to get away from him then again it is a dark story maybe he never gets away right i mean that's kind of a big theme in this movie and and i think that's the point like the movie gives us no hope <laughs> like there's no there there's no hope of of like further change because again everyone's trapped yeah 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 what uh, what do you make of the title uh, you know i guess it's it is is based on an actual streetcar named desire that ran through uh, new orleans french quarter I, I guess by the time they were filming it it had already been dismantled in in and they were put a they put a bus line in instead but um do you see much in the name of the of the play and the film that kind of ties into kind of the themes that uh, that are being explored here. Well, I I think it's funny um, that it's ele- the eleventh word of the script that gets us to the actual title of the of the. Film. <laughs> I was wondering. I had that in my notes. Oh, Pete's gonna love yeah. it. 
<laughs> they said it. 11 words. I, I had to count. So there, you know, I mean, it's both symbolic and literal, right? Like, uh, apparently, there are two streetcars in the French Quarter that take through there. One of them is Desire, and the other one is a streetcar named Cemeteries. And once you take those names and put them in this movie and you talk about, like, the, the entrapment of the, the French Quarter at this time, right, it starts to mean more things, right? It's like you can try to get to your place of peace and you desire to have, you know, all of these these things. But ultimately, the only other route out of there is to death. And so I think that's really interesting. Every character has their own route into the French Quarter. They all desire something that got them there. And um, and now they, the only way out is death. So I really like it. I do think it's interesting that she, I, what was it called where she ended up? The sisters play, it's Elysian Fields, which is also Elysian very fitting. Fields. They, they yes. go from desire to cemeteries to Elysian Fields, which is very much like the journey through death, you know, getting buried, and then your final, you know, final place of peace is Elysian Fields, which very much could be at the end, you know, her final resting place, you know, she's gone through all of these things and now she's been taken off to this, um, you know, mental institution, wherever it is that they're taking her as this final resting place for her to to be. But it's, I, I think it is, it's an interesting name because it's all very directional, but at the same time, you know, in the way that Tennessee Williams just even worded that line at the beginning of the film, it really gives you this sense of journey to death and peace. And actually where they're going is a giant ring in the sky with Matt Damon. <laughs> uh, eventually. Eventually they will get there. So you didn't even know that Streetcar was sci-fi. It's a sci-fi prequel to Elysium. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Uh, the, the child that she has ends up growing up to be Jodie Foster. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's it. That's the one. We, we've mentioned Kim Hunter, haven't talked about her much, but she plays the iconic Stella. And, Stella! Um, you know, my my experience with Kim Hunter, I mean, she'd been in a lot of TV episodes, like one-offs here and there that I'm sure I've seen over the course of my life. But largely, it's the Planet of the Apes films, which, of course, we covered the entire original five films from that series. And I just have such a love for her in that in that film, in that role. Yeah, this is, uh, you know, kind of uh, a big start for her, too, because, again, coming from Broadway. I mean, how does Kim Hunter work as Stella for you? Oh, I love Kim Hunter in this role. I really do. I think she's I think she captures the sort of enabled behavior uh, of of the entrapment like she is. She is central to sort of emotionally luring Blanche, even though we know Blanche is ending up there for many reasons, a bouquet of complicated reasons. One of those reasons is the fact that that her sister makes it feel like a safe place, and it is not a safe place. And it is a, a place that Kim has been gaslit and abused and emotionally abused, certainly. Um, if not, we have to imagine literally abused, physically abused by her husband, and um, and yet she has completely convinced herself that this place is is safe, and this she's eager to show it all off. Um, and so, you know, I think she's, I think Kim Hunter is fantastic at at you know embodying that that message in the movie. It was really an effortless performance. Like she just feels so much of this world and in that part that it was uh, just perfect. And yeah, she's, she carries everything that you just said. I mean, it really, I don't have much more to add because it's exactly that. Like she fits into this world. She buys into everything Stanley says, like everything about her. You can see in the very first time we meet her at the bowling alley when, when Blanche comes in and she points Stanley out and she's, and we look over at Stanley and he's like, I don't know if he's getting in a fight, but he's like throwing stuff around and he's arguing with some <laughs> other bowlers and stuff. And she just looks at him with loving eyes. Oh, isn't he just, isn't he a dream or whatever she she's said? It's like, wow. Okay. <laughs> she is completely bamboozled by this guy and she sees how handsome and how kind he can be and, and finds it so easy to forgive the rest of it. And that said everything to me right out of the gate. Fantastic. Right out of the gate. You're exactly right. Yeah, I think she's wonderful. We're here for the 
for the original or for the black and white cinematography, that's the reason we are here. It is, of course, our fifth of five nominees in the 1952 Academy Awards for Best Cinematography, Black and White. Harry Stradling is the DP of this, um, somebody that I know largely because he did some of uh, Hitchcock's um, late 30s, early 40s films, and then did a number of films with Kazan like this and uh, Facing the Crowd, which is another stunning film. And other things like, you know, My Fair Lady, Funny Girl, Hello, Dolly, a lot of things with uh, Streisand. What did you think of the cinematography? Uh, how does it fit with the way that the film is being told? Totally great. I think it's really, really great because what Stranling does, does here is use some fascinating, really noir techniques, right? Lots of low angles, lots of smoke, lots of, of fancy lighting and and super dramatic lighting and shadow across faces and all these incredible, like normally reserved for crime dramas, right? And he uses them to articulate the sort of damage of the space around us and the intrigue of the space around us. And I think that works very well. I think it levels up the message that we get on the stage. I think this technique, this style, this strategy levels up what we normally see on stage. And it is a unique gift to the film version that we get to see these choices at play. I think they make it, they actually they are the, the cinematography is what makes this thing energetic for me like in apart from the, obviously the big there are big moments but um for me i i really think it's i think it's great well and it's interesting it opens up the film I and mean, that's what they say a lot with plays when it's adapted you know it's you're what can we do to open it up so it doesn't feel so trapped on the stage there is a little bit of that like we have the bowling alley we have the train station when she arrives or, or the trolley station whatever the streetcar station and uh, we have the the exterior of the place like the street out in front of their house at elysian fields and so there are a number of places which isn't a lot but at the same time this really felt cinematic to me and it felt a lot less stagey than some other, uh, you know, adaptations from stage that I had seen. Like it really worked exceptionally. I think Kazan knows how to place the camera, work with the, the actors on screen, cinematically close-ups, um, you know, tight angles, wide shots, depth of field. Um, interestingly, I read that for the, the set for this house that we're in, he actually, over the course of the film, slowly shrinks it. So over the course of the film, we're looking at this fairly rundown house that they're living in, but it's getting tighter and tighter and tighter until the end. It, it, we're really feeling it's putting us into that headspace of Blanche as she's feeling kind of more and more trapped over the course of it. And I that fascinates me. And and you, can, you can't necessarily see it, but you can definitely feel it. And I think that just goes to how Kazan, along with uh, straddling are using the camera to capture this so brilliant what a brilliant choice that is i did not i had not read that i think that's fantastic uh fantastic choice to to bring those people together i think it's that is really great and you know i, I we've so we've talked about let's see what were they, the other play adaptations? We, I'm, I'm thinking mostly about Death of a Salesman because you opened with that one. And one of the things that we got in Death of a Salesman was it, from time to time set pieces that looked like and were, were sort of manufactured to, I think, look like a play, right? They looked like sets. Oh, like the backyard at night. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. And and I never got that feeling from this set, right? This this entire, like the way they, they handle the French Quarter is alive. And there are always things going on to look at. The space, the, the frame feels full no matter where we are. I think it's extraordinary. It makes it that much more exciting because it's interesting. Like you look at the cinematography here paired with Death of a Salesman, again, another uh, adaptation from stage. That one goes into a lot more of our protagonist's headspace as we're kind of seeing everything that Willie is seeing as he's going into his delusions and his flashbacks. And we're reliving all of that with him. And we're kind of like in that subjective camera as everything is dark and Dutch angle and everything. This one, we're not so much going into that subjective headspace, but the way that Kazan and Stradling are using the camera in the space 
is still putting us there without actively putting us there. And I think that's what made this um, such a surprise for me. Like just, there were some shots. There was one where Blanche is, um, you know, one of the fights with Stanley and she's like, she goes and starts hiding behind the, the sheer drapes and, just having the way that they shot that over her face, you know, is just like this, you know, flimsy shield of protection that she had found, but it was just so mesmerizing the way they captured it. So it just, I mean, it's just exciting filmmaking here, really. Yeah. Yeah. And when he comes in and screams at her, like his, just the way his face comes into the frame and fills it with his just open mouth is obviously it's a thing that we see a lot in montages. We also see him standing in the rain screaming Stella. I think it's interesting that he's screaming Stella as the signature montage material in this movie. But ultimately, how important is it to the relationship with our protagonist Blanche? It's it's really not. I just think it's funny that we end up screaming Stella as a as a moniker for this movie when we really are listening to Blanche. Yeah, but but I think it says so much about the relationship that Stanley has with the women in his life, and he is completely abusive to Stella. I mean, this is right after he had just hit her. And she goes up to Eunice's place and he's calling out for her and crying for her. And that's all she needed. And she comes back down to him and they make up. Whereas I think there's, you know, that same energy blasted against Blanche. I mean, to a certain extent, it's just as damaging to her. It really kind of ends up driving her to this mental break that she has and um, the eventual rape and the, um, you know, sending her off to the institution. Yeah. Interesting. Do you want to talk about the music at all, Alex North? Alex North's score is fantastic. The jazzy, it feels so much of the space, kind of that New Orleans vibe. It's kind of this dark, noirish jazz. Um, It is just a score I love. I just love this music. And it's interesting how much more memorable I find this than A Place in the Sun. And maybe it's just because I've listened to this score a lot more than A Place in the Sun, but I love this score. I likely would have picked it voting uh, at the Academy over A Place in the Sun. But um, again, now I need to go re-listen to A Place in the Sun to get my my uh, that back into my head just so I can really fairly judge it. But as it stands right now, I would say this is my favorite of the five that we've talked about. I, it is for me too. And, you know, I had a friend and fellow film professor at the years ago who was a I should say fellow professor who was a professor of film at the university and he he always had this one at the very top of his syllabus because he says it's both a fantastic score first of all straight up but it's also a real hallmark in how to use score for drama and jazz as a style is both perfect for the the French Quarter, but also uh, allows some really interesting techniques uh, as the narrative changes, right? Being able to artfully and completely within the uh, genre use dissonance to reflect emotional states is all over the place in this movie, right? That each character, it's practically Peter and the Wolf, right? Every character, character's emotional journey has its own fantastic jazz underpinning. Using those those sort of elements and those techniques as as a fantastically competent, clearly composer, um, I, I think Alex Norris makes something that that transcends just the the score itself, but makes the movie more so as a result this is this is one to learn from if you're if you're a composer so uh, i think it's really really great yeah absolutely love it to pieces all right well we'll be right back but first our credits Next Reel is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson, music by Idok, Oriol Novella, and Eli Kaplan. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at d-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show.
Andy, according to my friend, Internet, this is what Letterboxd is. Letterboxd is a global social network for grassroots film discussion and discovery. Use it as a diary to record and share your opinion about films as you watch them, or just keep track of films you've seen in the past. Showcase your favorites on your profile page. That is a lot. You bet it is. That's why I want you to tell our fair listeners just one thing you do with Letterboxd that has changed the way you watch movies. Let them have it. Okay, are you ready for this? So ready. I love lists. As of today, I have 246 lists in my account. I use them to track the movies I watch, organize them in all sorts of different ways. I track them by hand. I clone lists from other people. I use them to plan what I'm going to be watching. All sorts of things. I just, I love creating lists. It's a fantastic tool. Sexiest animated characters. Andy, what is this? We love Letterboxd. And if you're a movie lover, we are sure you will too. And when you upgrade from the free account, you will remove ads and support the great Kiwi team building this amazing service. Just use the discount code NEXTREEL or visit thenextreel.com slash letterboxd to get 20% off your pro or patron membership. And it works for renewals as well. All right, sequels and remakes. Have I seen them? Well, uh, there are no sequels to this. And regarding <laughs> this, it's really the play as far as uh, uh, remakes, other versions. And uh, interesting, a lot of filmmakers incorporate this the play into the film like uh pedro almodovar um in the film all about my mother um the the um, lead character is performing this play in the show same thing with sleeper woody allen's film he and keaton end up late in the film taking on the roles of stanley and blanche and woody allen's film blue jasmine uh it seems to be a little bit of a loose adaptation of this Interestingly, in the scope of prequels, there actually was a short film made by the written by the novelist Andrew O'Hagan, and it's part of Young Vic's short film series produced in collaboration with The Guardian in 2014. Gillian uh, Anderson directed and starred in it. It's called The Departure. I haven't looked for it, but that would be an interesting one to see what they did with that. As with a lot of these, there has been an operatic version made, a ballet. There was a, a 1955 TV version uh, with Jessica Tandy and Carl Malden that was uh, specifically just highlighting all the scenes between um, Blanche and Mitch. I, I guess just as a way to show you know how great she was in the part. In 1984, there was a TV remake or remake a, a TV version of this made that starred Anne Margaret as Blanche, Treat Williams as Stanley, Beverly, Beverly D'Angelo as Stella, and Randy Quaid as Mitch. And then in 95, there was another version based on the Broadway revival. The Broadway revival had Alec Baldwin and Jessica Lang. They were the only two who came over from the stage production. This one had John Goodman as Mitch and Diane Lane as Stella. And, uh, you know, again, a lot of places this has popped up the simpsons have spoofed it um you know an episode of the originals has a bit with it so i mean it's kind of all over the place as an element of culture that people are always referencing that's crazy well i i feel like you know we're this is the reason we're here it's awards season so give us the rundown how to do this film had 18 wins with 15 other nominations at the oscars uh, brando was nominated for best actor but lost to bogart this was to, we've talked about uh, um, the African Queen, which is what Bogart won for. We've also talked now about Death of a Salesman with Frederick March and A Place in the Sun with Montgomery Clift. We have not talked about Bright Victory starring Arthur Kennedy. But of those four, where do you stand? Well, I mean, as much as I've I've talked about my mixed feelings about the overall movie and my adaptation quibbles, I, I hope I led with the with the thing that is most important to me, which is Brando is sparkling in this movie. I feel like he's best actor. I mean, you can see where this is a year that likely the performances of Clift and Brando and perhaps March really split the vote leading to Bogart winning. Yeah. I don't think, I mean, I recently revisited the African queen just for this very purpose of kind of looking at these performances and I enjoy Bogart in the film, but all three of the other performances are better than Bogart, and I would have been happy seeing any of them take it. I certainly, after revisiting this, think personally Brando should have won, but I would have been fine with any of those other three. And now I'm really curious about Bright Victory that Arthur Kennedy did. That's a trickier one to find. 
Yeah. Um, Carl Malden was nominated for his performance in, in a supporting role and won beating out Kevin McCarthy in Death of a Salesman. How do you feel with that one? I like Carl Malden in this movie, and I think he is saddled with a challenging part. It is a really challenging part to be both sort of intermittently despicable and part of the culture and also being the more sympathetic character. So I'm I would give it to Malden, too. Yeah, I, I would, too. Vivian Lee won Best Actress, uh, beating out, among others, Shelley Winters in A Place in the Sun and Catherine Hepburn in The African Queen. I easily go to Vivian Lee for this. Uh, I would put Shelley Winters second. I haven't seen the other two, but oh, no, I take it back. Eleanor Parker in Detective Story, she was also yeah. fantastic. I just watched that. What a film that was. I had never seen it, but really exciting film. But still, Vivian Lee. I mean, it's just hard to go wrong with her in this for me. But I know you, she, you had more issues with her. I feel like it's Shelley Winters for me, but that's that's just, you know, that's where I am on the movie. I'm an anomaly. I'm a mystery. Best actress in a supporting role, Kim Hunter, won for her performance here. We talked about Mildred Dunnock in Death of a Salesman. I also, uh, again, recently watched Detective Story. Lee Grant was nominated for that. Uh, but again, Kim Hunter, just so good in this. Uh, where do you stand uh, opposite Mildred Dunnock, though? Because she's she was pretty good. She was pretty good. I think I'm, um, mm, mm, mm. you know, I think I'd be Mildred Dunnick. I oh. think I'd give it to Mildred Dunnick. Speaking of the complexities of challenging a, a difficult role. Yeah, I like I like Mildred. All right. Even though I love Kim Hunter in this movie. I really do. Yeah. Oh, she's fantastic. Absolutely. Uh, the film won Best Black and White Art Decoration, decoration Set Decoration. It uh, lost Best Cinematography. This is why we're here, to A Place in the Sun. Out of our five nominees, we have now talked about all five of these. A Place in the Sun, A Streetcar Named Desire, Death of a Salesman, Strangers on a Train, The Frogmen. Where do you stand as far as that? Do you think A Place in the Sun should have won? What? Wither the Frogmen, Andy. Wither the Frogmen. <laughs> Uh, of the five that certainly is the one's like oh okay interesting <laughs> why is nobody exactly why is nobody talking about the frogman that extraordinary piece of film i don't know <laughs> i feel like uh a, a place in the sun is pretty extraordinary are you are you this are you streetcar uh no it is a really hard line like Part of me really wants to say Strangers on a Train. I just, I loved what Robert Burks yeah. was doing in that film. But, I mean, all four of those, I mean, I, I kind of, looking at other films that were released in 51, that I would have said, oh, I would consider that instead of The Frogmen. I probably <laughs> would put uh, Orson Welles' Othello up there for sure. And uh, maybe Ace in the Hole. Like, you know, I think those two films uh, are very strong that have more interesting cinematography. Again, the Frogmen, technically, the fact that they were able to capture such amazing underwater cinematography for the time, I absolutely understand that. But I just think some of these other films may have had better black and white cinematography. So I certainly would dump the Frogmen and put one of those in there. But of these others, it's, it is such a hard race. Like, all four of those are so strong for such different reasons. You know what? You actually you actually swayed me just by saying the words, strangers on a train. I think I'm going to go strangers on a train. And the only thing I can think about is just the way they captured feet in that opening sequence as a way to bring us into the movie. Like, using the camera to do such interesting things is, uh, I, I think, strangers on a train nails it. Uh, we've got all of the great elements. We've got all the noir. We've got all the energy of the train. We've got filming in comp compressed places. And so I'm going to go Strangers on a Train. Wow, look at that. I know, you changed my mind. Okay. Uh, it was nominated for Best Costume Design Black and White, but lost, lost to Edith Head for A Place in the Sun, which I certainly think is a fair loss there. It was uh, nominated for Best Director, Kazan was, but lost to George Stevens for A Place in the Sun. And then we had it nominated for Best uh, Music, We've already talked about that. It lost to A Place in the Sun. Best Picture lost to An American in Paris, which kind of like Best Actor, I kind of think that perhaps when you when you have A Streetcar Named Desire and A Place in the Sun nominated, again, there's Decision Before Dawn and Quo Vadis, two films I haven't seen, but I could imagine that there might be a split between a Streetcar and Place in the Sun, which led to An American in Paris being uh, the winner. It's possible. I mean, it's also people might just love the colorful singing and dancing 
in that film. Mm-hmm. It lost Best Sound Recording to The Great Caruso, and Tennessee Williams, who adapted this from his play uh, for screenplay, lost to A Place in the Sun. I mean, Tennessee Williams, uh, we haven't really talked about Williams at all. In the scope of Williams, where does this stand with his other works? Have you seen a lot? Well, I mean, there's certainly more plays. Yeah, obviously. I, I feel like the one that, that I always turn to when I'm tasked with a Tennessee Williams conversation is Cat in a Hot Tin Roof. And I think the adaptation uh, with um, Paul Newman and Elizabeth Taylor is it's fantastic. I mean, it's really fantastic. And I don't pick up my phone at all. Also, because Burl Ives is in it. Come on. Burl, Burl, Burl Ives, Ives. Is, who I love uh, yeah. so much and then scares you to death in that film. So it is really, really great. And I think it's kind of on par in terms of popular opinion between these two. Like, it's really the choice between Streetcar and Cat in a Hot Tin Roof. And I think I'm just a Cat in a Hot Tin Roof guy. I need to uh, revisit that because that's one I haven't seen in a long time. I uh, probably watched it in proximity to this. Um, I have seen very few Williams. I've never seen Williams on stage. I have only seen of the adaptations. This, I think I've seen the Rose Tattoo, but if I did, it was like in college and I can't remember a thing about it. Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, and that's it. Like, so really two, maybe three Tennessee Williams properties. So I am sadly short on looking at different projects of his. I need to check more of them out. Yeah, I I have read more Tennessee Williams than I've seen uh, just in terms of going through theater classes in college. And so, you know, the ones that really stand out to me are the ones that I've, I've seen uh, performed. And, you know, those two, Streetcar and, and Cat in a Hot Tin Roof, Suddenly Last Summer, it, he's really, really great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, anyway, over at the BAFTAs, uh, Vivian Lee won Best British Actress for this, and it was nominated for Best Film from any source, but lost to The Sound Barrier. And over at the WGA Awards, Williams was nominated for Best Written American Drama, but lost to A Place in the Sun. Okay. Well, I think what we have is an opportunity for you to demonstrate your spreadsheet acuity by telling us how it did at the box office. For Kazan's production of Williams' play, he had a budget of $1.8 million, which is about $21 million in today's dollars. The movie opened September 19, 1951, and ended up becoming the fifth highest-grossing movie of the year, earning $4.2 million domestically, which is about $49.6 million in today's dollars. All told, it was a great success, landing with an adjusted profit per finished minute of almost $229,000. Not bad, 1951. Not bad at all. Uh, well, it's a it's a movie that's complicated for me. I celebrate a lot of the pieces as a whole. It really gets interesting in the, as as in and around Brando, and uh, is not my favorite. I'm glad to have revisited it because I really it, it's something that I had kind of forgotten. I mean, I, also I don't think it's one that I'm going to watch a lot, but at the same time. Kind of was an easy watch for me. I just I started it and was just instantly in it. Like the performances, the characters, the the look, the direction. Easy watch for me. Glad to have revisited this. Definitely something I will check out again. All right, all right. Well, with that, we will be right back for our ratings. But first, here's the trailer for next week's movie, kicking off our 1965 BAFTAs Best Film from Any Source series. We're looking at Beckett. It happened in Canterbury, England, eight centuries ago. A story as ageless as time itself. The immortal story of a man called Becket, who earned a king's most trusted friendship. Business, my lord. Who shared his most intimate secrets. (laughs) I must say I adore my French possessions. They're certainly worth recapturing. Until Becket the man was made a bishop and his king lost him to God. of one of the bitterest personal feuds known to history reveals the heartbreak, the conflict and conspiracy that engulfed the lives of a king and the one man he favored above all others. 
Starring Richard Burton as Beckett. Peter O'Toole as his king. I would have gone to war with all England's might behind me and even against England's interests to defend you, Thomas. I would have given away my life laughingly for you. Only I loved you. And you didn't love me. That's the difference. Human passions at their best and their worst. Quick! Out through the window! They are revealed in the story of Beckett. Here are the escapades that brought a blush to their country's face as they wenched and brawled their way across the pages of history. Thomas! Thomas, come here! Look at this. She stinks a bit, but we can wash her. What would you think of it? Cleaned up a little. Richard Burton as Beckett. You are my lord, God or no God. I would have come with you, for you had taken my heart before you captured my body. Beckett, the man of the world who became Archbishop of Canterbury and enemy of the king. Gentlemen, it is a supreme irony that the worldly Beckett, the profligate and libertine, should find himself standing here at this moment. But here he is, in spite of himself. Peter O'Toole, brilliant star of Lawrence of Arabia as King Henry II of England. Supported by a cast of stature and eminence. John Gielgud as King Louis of France. Donald Wolfitt. Pamela Brown. Martita Hunt. No one rid me of this meddlesome priest. Are all around me cowards like myself? Are there no men left in England? Jealousy, akin to madness that breeds incitement to murder. Vengeance that bites into the very flesh. One does not carry arms into God's house. Go! What? Do you want your death? The story of Beckett is recorded here, right up to the last brutal, bloody act. You know what I got the other day, Pete? Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been like decades. I would much rather use Kindle, or better yet, Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore either. I am an audiobook guy all the way. For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on The Next Reel, get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. It's the way to go. Uh, season 13 is a fun one, looking at various awards categories over the decades, from Best Picture nominees to cinematography. Adapted screenplays to visual effects. And a good number of movies we're discussing started out as books or plays that you can read now on Audible. 1940 Academy Awards Best Picture nominees of Mice and Men and Wuthering Heights. Oh, what a great way to start this season. In other series, we also covered The Killers, based on Hemingway's short story. A Place in the Sun, Strangers on a Train, A Streetcar Named Desire. Beckett, A Boy and His Dog, The Princess Bride, Congo. The Scarlet Letter, Jackie Brown, The Woman in Black. So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on Audible. Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they're so annoying and have no connection to our content. Plus, they just jam those things in wherever they see fit. We listened to you when you said you didn't like them. So now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. 
please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts. I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I have read hundreds of books through it. I couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out, and you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So much great material available. Dive in with a free 30-day trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. All right, Andy, Letterbox. it's time for Letterbox. What are you going to do? Where are you going to steal stars till you can give from other movies so you can give this one 10 full stars? Because of your absurd enthusiasm for this movie. I just, I loved it. I mean, it really knocked my socks off. This is an easy five stars and a heart for me. Um, I just was really uh, taken by the story, by the characters. It just, I mean, just the performances alone are five stars. I mean, it just is such a strong film. So that's where I sit with this one. I'll give it four stars in a heart. I, um, because I like talking about it. There you go. Four stars and a heart. See, look at me. I'm a real glass. Half, I'm a real glass four stars full guy. <laughs> okay. Well, remember, you can find us over on Letterboxd. I'm Soda Creek Film. Pete is Pete Wright. So check us out, follow us, and uh, join us in the conversation over there. So what did you think about A Streetcar Named Desire? We would love to hear your thoughts. Hop into the Show Talk channel over in our Discord community, where we're going to be talking about it this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterboxd giveth, Andy. As Letterboxd always doeth. Mm. I went down to the bottom of the barrel because I wanted to see if there were people who were conflicted. You know, like me. Where'd you go? Did you go, you went for the popular kids? I went high. I wanted to hang out with the popular kids. That is correct. Do you want to, do you want to go first? Do you want me to go first? I'll go first. I was, you know, at first, I, I mean, it's hard to pick because so many of them are just all about how hot Marlon Brando is. And <laughs> there were a lot of those. But I landed on Mia's four and a half star. It's the second time within a month that Mia reviewed it. And uh, it just cracks me up. The way I lived almost 22 years on this earth and always thought the name of this play was A Street Cat Named Desire. <laughs> And they unsuccessfully waited for an animal the first time I watched this. <laughs> That's funny. Um, I have uh, Bardia Kodadadi, uh, who gives it a half star. It says, me and my friend watched this in three parts. Part one, I was so excited about watching a classic movie with Marlon Brando in it. And at first we were like, okay, it's not bad. Let's see what happens. But after an hour, we were desperately trying not to fall asleep and agreed to finish it another time. Part two, we had an unfinished business and we had to watch another hour of that boring. But after a while, my friend and I had to go out and we, I was really happy because I couldn't bear it. And part three, we watched it at 1.5 speed and it was still boring and i didn't give the slightest about what was happening and after two effing hours and four effing minutes it was finally over this film is just a marlon brando yelling at everyone and two sisters crying like babies and some random people shouting stella and blanche (laughs) oh i don't dislike the movie that much (laughs) thanks thanks letterboxd you're the best